before, he had a flair for mass communication. And he soon put his theological views into jingles set to music, like a modern-day advertising campaign. And soon his ditties were being sung by dock workers as they unloaded ships, by street hawkers in the marketplace, and by schoolchildren on their way home from school. It might be hard for us to understand why Arianism was suddenly so popular in the early 300s AD. But Arian ideas appealed to the, to the Greco-Roman mind, the pagan mind, in so many ways. It allowed for there to be only one supreme God with no confusion as to his nature. Out there and unapproachable, perfect and holy, sacred in this transcendent sense. On the other hand, it allowed Jesus to be some kind of superhuman superhero, a go-between, a semi-divine hero. And um, the, the, the Greek and Roman world already had lots of semi-divine heroes. That was a category they understood in the pagan mind. It was, no pun intended, logical. On the other hand, many Christians believed that Arius actually was making a very serious mistake. This included Arius' boss, the bishop of Alexandria, a man named, confusingly, Alexander. His res response was to fire Arius. But that just created a scandal and a controversy that actually quickly spread right across the whole Roman Empire. Part of the problem was that there just didn't seem to be a solution to the argument. Each side had their proof texts from the Bible. Oh, the Bible says this. Oh, but the Bible says that. Each side had their proof texts from the Bible. Uh, verses in the Bible that seemed to affirm what both sides were saying. And each side had their theological arguments. Arius argued that if his opponents were correct, then there were two who were divine. Both father and son were divine, and therefore there had to be two gods, not one. Christianity had always understood itself to be part of the great Jewish monotheistic tradition, the most fundamental teaching of which is that there is only one God. And his opponents argued that if Arius was correct, then the word of God was not divine. Yet the church, right from the beginning, had worshipped Jesus as Savior, Lord, Judge, and God in every way that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God with us, is the most basic and most central Christian belief. And Arius was denying that. The controversy became very public and very heated. In Alexandria, there were marches in the street with people chanting Arius's theological refrains. In Constantinople, according to one bishop, conversation everywhere was about this theological dispute. Um, that bishop wrote, if in this city you ask anyone for change, he will discuss with you whether God the Son is begotten or unbegotten. If you ask about the quality of the bread, you will receive the answer that God the Father is greater, God the Son is less. If you suggest that a bath is desirable, you will be told that there was nothing before God the Son was created. Well, 
as soon as Constantine became emperor uh, of the entire Roman uh, the entire Roman Empire in AD um, 324, he the first thing he did wanted was he wanted to settle this dispute. He saw this theological controversy as a threat to the unity of his brand new and all shiny Roman Empire, and he wanted it settled. So in AD 325, he called a council of all of the bishops from all of the cities right across the Roman Empire. Uh, this synod, or council of bishops, took place in Nicaea, uh, a, a town that it, today we would find in northwestern Turkey, not far, a stone's throw, from the city of Constantinople, which of course today has been renamed Istanbul. For the bishops present, some 300 plus of them, this whole thing must have just seemed like the, the biggest of miracles. Many of these men had experienced persecution, imprisonment, torture for their Christian faith not many years earlier. One of them had only one eye. Another had lost the use of his hands through torture. Now they came, not, not, not walking and hiding in, in secrecy, but now they came riding in comfort all expenses paid by the emperor. Uh, one, one bishop, recalling the council, wrote, no bishop was absent from the table of the emperor. Bodyguards and soldiers stood guard with sharp swords drawn around the outer court of the palace. But among them, the men of God could walk fearlessly and enter the deepest parts of the palace. At dinner, some of them lay on the same couch as the emperor, while others rested on cushions on both sides of him. Easily one could imagine this to be the kingdom of Christ or regard it as a dream rather than reality. Now, in actual fact, that council had many, many things to discuss and make decisions about, questions to settle on standardizing practices now that persecution had ended. No one anticipated a, a huge debate on Arianism. Uh, for those bishops coming from the West, the Western end of the empire, the debate wasn't terribly interesting. As far as they were concerned, the whole issue had been settled a hundred plus years ago when Tertullian said God was three persons, one substance. And for those on Arius' side, they believed that all was needed was a clear exposition of their position and everyone would see that it was right and obviously right. So nobody was expecting a big hubbubaloo. But when a certain bishop named Eusebius of Nicomedia got up to make just such a presentation, the reaction of the other bishops present was precisely the opposite of what they'd all been expecting. The idea that the Son of God was a creature, no matter how high or exalted a creature, provoked hostility and anger and shouts of, you lie, and blasphemy, and heresy. And apparently he was shouted down, and his speech was torn from his hands and ripped to shreds and trampled underfoot. In terms of outcome, 
the council needed to produce a statement that would capture and articulate the truth with respect to this issue. And it came up with a statement, um, and it was worked and reworked. There were changes to be made, uh, but the statement would come to be known as what we would call the Nicene Creed. And with respect to dealing with Arianism as a wrong idea, as a false teaching, it said this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence as, as the, oh, sorry, of the same essence or of one substance as the Father, through him all things were made. And uh, the creed continues, and actually we'll, we'll, we'll see that a little, a little bit more later when we'll say it together. But in several ways, the creed shuts the door on Arianism, the idea that Jesus is a creature. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Remember that the Father is the maker of all things visible and invisible. Thus, in declaring that Jesus is not made, the creed excludes Jesus from the category of creature, either visible or invisible. Eternally begotten. Remember that catchphrase, there was when he was not? Well, that's excluded too. There never was when he was not. He was always, always, always was, was. And always will be. Whatever begotten means, in terms of the nature of God, it is eternally, timelessly true. The Nicene Creed, so created, stands as the fundamental creedal statement across multiple, multiple, multiple denominations and traditions. It stands for millions and millions of people around the world today as the basic statement of what we believe as Christians. Ever since, with respect to religious groups that deny the divinity of Jesus, such as, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, such traditions stand outside of what is recognized to be the Christian faith. Now, before moving on, I'd just like to point out that the language of the Nicene Creed and also the language of the Athanasian Creed, if you know that one too, is a mixture of biblical language, biblical terms, biblical ideas, mixed with Greek philosophical terms and ideas. Um, eternally begotten is biblical language of one essence, of one substance. That's, that's a Greek way of thinking. That, that they're Greek ideas. So that's what happened. What can we take from it today? What can we learn? Well, usually on such an occasion as this, um, it would be obvious to proceed by defending the biblical correctness of the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. 
And we've done that in the relatively recent past. So today, because we're really looking at history rather than doctrine, because this is a historical sermon series rather than a doctrinal one, I'm going to continue to think about frames of reference. Now, to go back a few more centuries when Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles set out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dead, risen from the grave, Lord of heaven and earth. They were able to appeal. When they spoke to people, they were able to appeal to two primary sources of authority. Firstly, what they themselves had seen and heard. And secondly, and indeed more importantly, they were able to appeal to the Holy Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, what it said about the Messiah. And as you may have noticed from the book of Acts, when, the, uh, when Jews and God-fearing Gentiles wanted to check or appraise Paul's claims, they searched the scriptures to see for themselves. But as mission to the Gentiles progressed, the apostles and the evangelists, they encountered people who had no knowledge or interest in Hebrew scriptures. To these people, Christians were just ignorant atheists because they had no visible gods, no statues or idols to bow down in front of. And talk of the scriptures was meaningless. I don't know that book, I don't care about that book. And in the book of Acts, when Paul preaches to the Greeks in Athens, he appeals to Greek literature and to Greek philosophy, not to the Old Testament. Now, some ancient Greek philosophers had taught that above the entire cosmos, there must be a supreme being, an unknown God who created everything. And some of those Greek philosophers even postulated that the gods that they knew, uh, Apollos and, and all of their gods, they, were, they could have been perhaps just human inventions. Um, this was indeed the basis of Paul's gentle argument in the Areop... Yeah, what do you call it, Steph? In the marketplace in Athens that day. Uh, he said... Your unknown God, I'm here to introduce you to him. This God, the real God, does not live in temples, nor is he to be known by statues, for he is knowable, and in fact not far from any of us. He is easy to know. For even as your own philosophers and poets have said, we are his children, and he looks after us. What happened after that is that in the first few centuries after Christian evangelists and apologists finding that such appeals to Greco-Roman sources of authority, their philosophies, their literature, finding that that was a fruitful way of going in terms of helping people to understand who Jesus is, they began to talk about God more and more in ways that had more to do with Greek philosophy than with biblical revelation. Words like immutable, impassable, God as perfect being, what might that look like, fixed, 
etc., etc., unchanging. So then, fast forwarding to the time of Arius, when he began thinking about the Word of God, the Logos of God, he was already thinking in terms of Greek philosophical categories rather than biblical ones. He wasn't talking about the Word of God as we'd recognize from, say, John chapter 1 and other places in the Bible. Rather, he was talking about the Word of God using terms that Greek philosophers would have understood when they spoke about the Logos of God. Um, several years ago, I found myself watching a Muslim evangelist on YouTube. And he was teaching a group of Muslims about how Christians are wrong when it comes to the divinity of Christ. He referred to Jesus, he referred to that story from Mark chapter 11 of Jesus cursing the fig tree. What happens is that Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance and he goes to find out if it had any fruit on it. When he reached it, he found nothing because, as Mark tells us, it was not the season for figs. He then cursed the tree. The next morning, traveling into Jerusalem by the same route, the disciples saw that the tree had withered from the root. Now, if we were going to think biblically about that story, using biblical categories and biblical assumptions, we'd see that that story is about how Jesus is God with us and that the history of national Israel is about to reach its climax and fulfillment. Thinking in biblical categories, that's plainly what's going on there. But the, Muslims the Muslim evangelist's point was not that. Rather, he said this. He said, Jews, Christians, Muslims, we all believe that there is one God. And God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, knowing everything, omnipresent everywhere at once. Now, in actual fact, those terms, omni omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, they're not Christian, Jewish, or Islamic terms, rather they spring from Greek philosophy. But this particular Muslim evangelist, borrowing those ideas from the world of Greek philosophy, made this point. He said, if Jesus was God, he would have known that there were no figs, that it was not the season for figs because he would be omniscient. If Jesus was God, he would not have to travel from one place to another in order to determine this before he would be omnipresent. If Jesus were God, he wouldn't even need to eat figs in the first place. And if he did, he could just make them miraculously, for he would be omnipotent. Proven three ways Jesus is not God. Now, actually, his reasoning is watertight, but his conclusion is wrong. Horribly wrong, desperately wrong, dangerously wrong. His use of non-biblical categories to try to understand the Bible had defeated him, blinded him. He was not thinking biblically. In much the same way, the Arian controversy arose from people, Arius and his followers, using non-biblical sources of authority to try to understand the Bible and its message. 
And when we do that ourselves, we should at least be aware of the fact that that's what we're doing. It's not necessarily wrong, as Paul shows us in the Areopagus. But it can be, as Arius shows us, actually very dangerous. You might be thinking, when do I do that? What, what might that look like? Well, here's an example. Um, I love psychology. I think that psychology has given us, in the last century or so, amazing insights into how we tick, how we work on the inside. And many of those insights are useful to me in ministry. Now, whilst Hollywood and perhaps some of us might like to poke playful fun at psychologists from time to time, the plain fact of the matter is that psychology is a major recognized authority in our world, whether we like it or not. Psychology is an authority that actually most of us bow to, whether we're aware of it or not, and in a variety of ways. Our language is now filled with psychobabble. For example, I get really OCD about that. Well, no, you don't, not unless you've been clinically diagnosed. I have an avocado fetish. Oh, no, you don't. Or at least I certainly hope you don't. You just really love avocados. She's been really acting out lately. No, she hasn't. Actually, she's been behaving very badly and needs firm correction and discipline. I'm in denial about that at the moment, a statement that shows that you aren't. <laughs> a temptation in our age for pastors is actually to fill our sermons with psychobabble in order to sound authoritative. Listen for it, and you'll hear it yourselves. The purpose-driven life? Oh, I hope not. I want to be led by the Spirit, not driven by a purpose, or even a porpoise. Ever heard a sermon on forgiveness that went on and on about baggage and letting go and bitterness and how it would eat away at you? Well, psychology has some wonderful insights into forgiveness, just like it has some wonderful insights into all kinds of things. But for me, as a pastor, it is critical that I think biblically about forgiveness before I bring in insights from psychology. For example, the question, have you forgiven yourself? Well, that might have some meaning in some contexts, but for a Christian to speak in such language means that they haven't understood what forgiveness is, who Jesus is, or what the work of the cross is. For it is impossible, biblically speaking, to forgive yourself in exactly the same way that it is impossible for you to owe yourself money. And in much the same way, forgiveness, biblically speaking, has nothing whatsoever to do with feelings. If you wait upon your feelings, you'll be blind to the fact that God commands us to forgive everybody, everything, immediately and without exception. And that if we disobey, we are outside of the terms of the covenant. If pastors depend upon psychology rather than the Bible as their ultimate authority, they'll misunderstand the Bible and teach things that are dangerous nonsense. Just like Arius. It's not wrong to read the Bible 
from the point of view of psychology or anthropology or feminist theory or Marxist theory or economic theory or whatever, if we're trying to make connections in order to explain the message of the Bible to the people of our world. Paul shows us how. And indeed, other fields of endeavor can furnish us with insights into what um, that do indeed add meaning and depth to what we read in the Bible. I quite enjoy hearing about the insights into biblical narrative that, comes, that come from feminist theory and from liberal scholarship, often being impressed by their observations and appalled by their conclusions. Arius used a Greek philosophical frame of reference to decide what it meant that Jesus was the word of God, and that led to serious error. Nevertheless, the Nicene Creed, the solution to that problem, was a product of both biblical and philosophical thinking. All truth is God's truth. But we need to constantly check our frame of reference. Thinking biblically. And the Lord be with you all.